Hello, my name is Zoltan Chigesh, and this is Zoltan's podcast on coaching. In this series, I'm talking with internationally renowned coaching scientists and coaches. We explore their personal and professional insights on the science of coaching and on the helping professions. Are you interested in how they got close to this profession? Are you curious about the new frontiers they are exploring right now? Join me and listen to the conversation. Inspiration and some fun is ahead. My guest today is Joel de Girolamo, Vice President of Research and Data Science at the International Coach Federation and the Associate Editor of Counseling Psychology Journal. Welcome, Joel. I'm honored to have you. Thank you, Zola. It's great to be here with you. I was really thrilled to have someone from the ICF who had up research there, because with my background as EM past Vice President of Research at EMCC, I, I always had a professional curiosity on what might be going on at the big rival. And I know that we are not rivals and we are all working on the professionalization of coaching and on bringing coaching to all who needs it. And I still had a curiosity on what may be going on behind your scenes. So that's why I'm really thrilled to have you here. But I wouldn't like to focus on on your ICF role. I'm more interested in, in you as a person and you as a researcher. If you allow me, then my first question would be, what brought you to coaching and coaching research? Wow, that's a that's a lengthy, it would be a lengthy answer to that question, Zoli, because my background goes back to, well, inherently, you know, from a trait characteristic, if we think of psychology, I'm a very curious person. And so I've always wondered how things worked. And and I was, if you could ask my mother today, she would talk about me taking things apart, but now, now he's getting them back together. <laughs> I, I wanted to see how they work, but again, couldn't couldn't always get them back together. And so I went into engineering, into the field of engineering, and that's my first degree. And I had this curiosity of how things work. It's really fascinating because my father, he, he was manager of a manufacturing plant when I was young, and I would occasionally go into the plant and, and watch him interact with people. And it was fascinating because I, I learned what charismatic leadership was from him. And I learned about motivating people and connecting with people. But yet what I also saw was was really fascinating, too, because here these people were working on assembly lines and and they were trying to be as efficient as possible. And, and I'd ask my dad about that. I'm like, who figures out how to put the assembly line together and how the people work and what what operation one person does and then sends it to the next person. And he said, well, there are these people, efficiency experts. And, you know, I've learned later through IO psychology that they're, you know, those kind of Taylorism, uh, Frederick Taylor. I was like, wow, I want to be one of those people. I want to learn how to do that. Right. And because that was the engineering part of me as well as the people part of me that it's like, okay, how can people work more effectively? How can we be more efficient? And when I think about, you know, now over the last 30 years, how we can be really more mindful and better about taking care of the people. And so they don't get repetitive stress injuries and things like that. But part of me says, sadly, my father didn't know. If he had known about IO psychology, industrial and organizational psychology, 
I would have gone after that first, but he didn't know. My, my high school counselors didn't know. So I said, okay, fine. I'll just go and be an engineer like my father. <laughs> and so I went to the same school as he did and pursued that path for quite a while. And then I got an MBA, a master's in business administration. And then that helped me to understand how businesses work, learn a little bit more about management and leadership. And it was interesting too, because again, this curiosity thing that I would read about management, I'd read Peter Drucker and some of these other guys. and But I always felt that there was something deeper. How do we understand, you know, what's under, under the hood? There was a guy that we had in the States, a business person named Ross Perot, and he was from Texas. And he had this kind of nasal sounding like, you gotta look under the hood. <laughs> So if we think of the car looking under the hood, you know, he's right. You got to you got to look underneath and see what's in there. I probably would have studied industrial and organizational psychology right out of the gate at university. But the engineering background, the business background have been incredibly helpful to me. So when I do a, a research study in psychology and I need to delve into the statistics Numbers are my friends. I'm I'm familiar with numbers. <laughs> and it's really interesting because I worked at IBM straight out of university. And we had some courses called Design of Experiments. And there's a guy, Marv Smoke was his name. I can still hear his voice. And he would say, look at your data. Look at your data. Look at your data. And I tell people that today. Look at your data because your data has a story. It has a story to tell. So it's our job as researchers to gather our data, no matter what we're studying, look at that data and see what is the story here? What's it trying to tell me? And so I think that's absolutely fascinating. So I got the industrial and organizational psychology degree and went on to study human behavior. And so industrial and organizational psychology is human behavior in the workplace. It's about people and how they behave. And then coaching, I just happened to see this job come up and I'm like, huh, that's pretty cool. Well, I saw the listing of what they were looking for. I'm like, I could do that. I could do that. I could do that. Wow. ICF, they're, they're supposed to be pretty good. So I looked them up. Wow. They're in the town where I live. I had no idea. And so I thought, okay, well, I guess maybe I should apply for this job. So I did. I was working on my own at the time and it was a new position. I went in, interviewed, got the job offer and, and arrived and asked them, what do you want me to do? And I said, I don't know. You tell us. <laughs> Free head. So, yeah. So, so it was great. You know, I've gotten to shape the job of there's now a, a department, six of us full time, and then some part time people. And we use a lot of contractors as well for our projects. And so it's grown dramatically since I think there were really two of us doing research, myself doing academic research and another person doing member industry research. So we've grown quite a bit and I'm very, very proud of the research that we've all done. I like the whole story, the transition from the engineer to the guy who creates the lines to the guy who, sorry for calling you the guy, but to the guy <laughs> who looks under the hood to, to get into the human details. I do see the journey. In the background, you be focusing more and more on people on things beneath the hood. And what is the story of your data? That's really a, a compelling picture for me. 
I have small kids, so I'm reading a lot of stories for them. And I just simply like it, the story that your data is telling. That's a more soft picture of research for me. Because usually we have these, okay, what are the statistical probes or what are the methodologies you are using around your data? How did you collect it? How are you analyzing it? And just asking about the story of the data sounds kind. But I know that doesn't mean that you are not rigorous in, in using method. I just like the picture. And what is your favorite story or what is your recent favorite that you are engaging with these days? One of the studies that we're doing right now that is, I think, really compelling is a study on coaching culture. People have talked about coaching culture in organizations, and they've talked about everybody having access to a coach, coaching have a line item in the budget. But the the approach that I'm looking at it from is the behavioral standpoint. And I was having a conversation with Jonathan Passmore a while back, and we were talking about this. And he's like, well, what do you, what do you mean? And he used the expression of looking at it from the other side of the spoon. <laughs> you know, people have looked at it from this corporate view, to me, sort of sterile view of what's what's in the uh, what does HR say and, and that sort of thing, the human resource department. But we're creating an assessment. And, and one of the people in our research department, actually, she got her PhD on part of this study. And th- that is, what are the uh, importance in an organization? What's the importance of certain characteristics and certain values of a coaching culture? So she did a, a very good literature review. We did we did a, uh, created a hierarchy, a structure for all that material. And, you know, there's different material. There's Dan Dennison and his work on coaching culture and, and uh, of course, Edgar Schein, his work. We looked at, you know, what goes on in people's heads. We looked at the behaviors that people exhibit or the organization exhibits. And then we look at, as Edgar Schein talks about the artifacts, what are the artifacts And these are the things that we see in the organization. So our approach in the study, this assessment that we're developing, is to have mirrored items or questions in the culture assessment. And so coaches could use this to help assess what the coaching culture really is inside an organization. So the two sides that this will look at are what is the organization promoting or encouraging and then what are the behaviors that the, the coworkers are exhibiting? And so the beauty of this is the, the way this is going to be organized. And, and who knows, it could totally flop because I've, I've never seen an assessment like this before. But, you know, we're trying it. And so what the organization can assess, how well their message is getting out and what the message is as to what they're promoting or encouraging. And then they can also get a, an assessment of the worker behavior and what people are inside the organization are perceiving. And these are around, again, the values, the characteristics and and the coaching skills, right? So when we did a study on managers and leaders many years ago, and we asked about manager behavior in terms of coaching skills, we didn't ask, does this manager or leader use coaching skills? No, we asked, did they, do they ask questions that create powerful insights or awareness? So we don't use the word coaching if we can. 
I feel that this could be a really dramatic instrument for coaches to use inside organizations to help promote coaching skills use more broadly. And eventually, I'd like to talk about that a little bit more in our conversation. I'm happy to hear even more right now. And what really catches my attention is that you are experimenting with the methodology. The research or your, your approach is not just about taking at a new question with something of an well, a well used or a well evidenced method, but you are using a different method. You are experimenting with the way how you are going to assess, the way how you are going to to address the question itself. So it's not just the the content that is changing or is interesting, but the method you are using is is an experiential thing. And what is interesting for me, well, I, I'm really interested in research, no question. But what I'm really interested in these days is the innovation in the methodologies. What what can we use? How can we address the complex and complicated questions of coaching and the things under the hood as well as people are, well, we are not simple things. And I think that's a very, a very kind way of saying that humans are complicated. Yeah, so I, I love hearing about measurement innovations. Yeah, we are so complicated. And I remember going from engineering to psychology. And in engineering, you're looking for correlations of 0.9. So in uh, correlation, uh, a one is perfect. So if I would always move this left hand and then the right hand moves at the same time, or move the right hand, so my hands are moving together, that's a correlation of one. That's perfect, right? If it happens some of the time, but sometimes it doesn't, that's a, a lower level of correlation. And so in engineering, you're looking for very, very high levels of correlation, right? And, and you know, remember numbers of 0.95 being not that good. In, in psychology, a 0.3 is considered good. <laughs> yes, yeah, we have found something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, when I first was reading these psychology research papers, I was astounded. It took me about a year to get used to that. When I was teaching at university and, and when I was discussing research, wherever in my conversations, I think that's the a first step is to give proper context to the numbers. Mm-hmm. That when a study says that, well, we have found we have found evidence that these things are correlating at a significant or considerable level and we are happy, then it's always important to add that, well, in this study, the level of correlation was 0.3, which means this, that in every third occasion or around that, we have seen the pattern emerging. And there are all the other occasions when we are not. And it's important to ask the questions from this point of view, what else is happening there? Or what could be facilitating this relationship or what could be going against it? That's why I have in my mind when I was laughing with you. Yeah, and, and you bring up a good point. So in, in research, you know, we have qualitative methods. So those are interviews and focus groups and hearing the words that people use. And then we have quantitative methods, which we've just been talking about, where there are numbers and Some people view these as sterile objects that you do a t-test and a confirmatory factor analysis and it met the level, clip level of yes, this is good and this is not as statistically significant and everything. 
there's, you know, as well as I do, mixed methods where you combine qualitative work with quantitative work. And so maybe you do some qualitative work, you talk to some people and you find out some interesting things and you're, you're thinking, wow, I want to, I want to dig into that. And so then you learn, you know, what, what you want to dig into or how big the problem is. And, and I, I often use the analogy, do we have a, a bread box, you know, a small box that bread would fit into, or do we have a refrigerator, you know, the, a big, large thing, you know, what, what are we dealing with here? And qualitative work will tell you that. And then you can move to quantitative, you can develop a survey, you can do your statistics and all that fun stuff. And then you could say, wow, there's something really interesting here. I wonder what that's about. And then you can dive into the, the qualitative again and do some interviews and dig in and find what's in there. Sort of the stream is endless to be, you know, people talk about a body of knowledge. I don't believe in a body of knowledge. I believe in a stream of knowledge because it's always flowing. It's always moving. So for me, that's an, an important thing about research that, that we are not just a, a static thing, which is being done, but it is something very iterative, dynamic, and it's all evolving. And, and that's frankly why I bristle a little bit at this term body of knowledge, because it's not a body, it's a stream and it is always dynamic. It is always moving. And you can think of a, of a river with a bunch of little creeks, we would say, flowing into the creek. And so if, if you follow back when I'm doing a literature review, I follow back and I'll start to collect things. My wife kind of laughs at me when she started seeing me work at home. She saw, oh, now I see how you work. You kind of, and I call it hunting and gathering. And I'm, I'm hunting and gathering the basic pieces of literature back in time. And then I'll start with the back in time pieces. And then I'll move forward in time and see what followed that kind of research. And, you know, there's a lot of incredible researchers out there. So over in Europe, think of the Bern School of, of Researchers, Klaus Grau, Daniel Gassman, Leslie Greenberg was involved on in that. You look at the, the people like Bruce Wampold, Barry Duncan, who've done a lot of this seminal research and it's in therapy, but it's about what causes change. It's interesting, Zoltan, because maybe I'm going off on another tangent. Well, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just sensing that we are getting to, a, to another topic, and I'm, I'm just curious. So please go on. You know, it's absolutely fascinating to me because I remember when I actually, before I even started the job, and I was like pretty sure I was going to take the job, and I was at PSYOP, the, their conference, the Society of Industrial and Organizational Psychology. And it, and it got me to thinking, well, where's all the research? about how we as humans change. Why do we change? And fundamentally, if you look at the NLP folks, they talk about we're moving away from something or we're moving toward something. And so we generally move away from pain or we move toward something and you hear the term seekers. People are seeking something higher. So I think fundamentally, it, it's about one of, those, one of those two things. And so I asked myself, okay, so... What causes change? What causes, what triggers people to change? And I thought, you know, there's got to be really good research out there, right? <laughs> so I, I started expecting such a fundamental question. Yeah. yeah. And, and you go out there and there's, frankly, there's, it's just, it's scarce. There's hardly anything around that. 
And there are a couple of things I might mention here, and that is some of the work by the late uh, Klaus Grah and Daniel Gassman at, in Bern, and, and that is about what they call a resource activation. They found that they, they did a study and broke the therapy sessions into, into three groups. One was successful, one was so-so, and one, were, one set were unsuccessful. And they used a one-minute increment of analysis in these sessions, and they analyzed them. And they, they, two of the facets that they looked at were problem activation and then resource activation. And what they found was that for the successful sessions, that there was a lot of the resource activation. How were the therapists activating resources in the clients? And as coaches, coaches do the exact same thing, right? There's no difference. So this has been a revelation to me in the past couple months, Zoltar. And that is, we talk about coaching versus therapy, right? Coaches do in in terms of what therapists do. And I have long looked therapeutic literature as well as the coaching literature. And the coaching folks we've borrowed from the therapeutic literature, sometimes appropriately and sometimes inappropriately. But fundamentally, where I come out, I believe to this to, to this day, and I may be wrong, and, and I may change my mind in the future, so I hold that option open. But fundamentally, coaches are doing the same things as therapists, activating these resources in the client. And if you read the, or listen to, there's a guy named Jeff Zeig, and Milton Erickson, I'm sure you've heard of Milton. Yes. I think of him as father of hypnosis. Excuse me, he... he is not the father of hypnosis, but he really popularized it, right? Yes. I watch some of his sessions. I read about him. I listen. If you try to decipher what he did, it's really, really hard to say this was Milton Erickson's process because he didn't have a process. But one thing Jeff Zeig, who was one of his students, Jeff Zeig came out with is he said, you have to be like a heat-seeking missile to find what is going to motivate the client. And that's that that's really it. And if you're coaching, it's the same thing, right? Yes. Well, I, I just wanted to see that that's in our definition that we are helping the clients move towards their goals through their own tools and resources. But I'm quite sure that we don't have that exact definition in any of the textbooks. But yes, what you are saying really resonates with my understanding of coaching. Yeah. Absolutely. And- and if you think of the work on motivation, you know, DC and Ryan's work, you know, they're the motivated, internally motivated people, the extrinsically motivated people. You have to give them a reward of some sort. A motivated people are probably not going to get off the couch, right? Yes. <laughs> we know is that those intrinsically motivated people are inherently easier to work with, right? Because they bring in the energy. Exactly. And that's what Jeff Zeig was talking about. Finding that hook, right? How are you going to hook the client into being motivated to want to go work on their issue or their work on their goal? And then, you know, as a coach, you're just a facilitator, right? You're just helping them find the hook. And then maybe, you know, helping them sort out, do I do A, B, or C? And that's the idea about asking the powerful questions, right? I was like, well, okay, hey, okay, well, let's 
go down that path. What, what does that look like? Now we're back to Carl Rogers in the 1950s, where the client has every, all the resources they need to heal themselves or to, to meet their goals. So I think kind of come full circle. Yes, that's um, what I wanted to say. Historically, we are back, back at the foundation. And what is what is inspiring in this whole line of thought is that it seems to be self-justifying. Perhaps I'm using the wrong words here that, you know, by getting the circle, it gives me the impression that, well, we are right in saying this, that this is some kind of a fundamental truth that we are finding here. And there were so many interesting things that I could pick up. And let me circle back a few so a few moments ago. But and this will be a sideline, but I really got this one. You said that there were instances when we coaching folks inappropriately borrowed from therapists. And I would be very curious, do you have an example? Or do you have something in your mind? But what you would say that, well, that was that was not really a good business that we have done there. Fundamentally, I don't believe for the most part what coaches do is different fundamentally from what therapists do. What is fundamentally different are the clients. So if we go to, to Corey Key's work, what he did was he kind of sorted people into three groups. The flourishing group who are very, very mentally healthy the moderately mentally healthy group that he that he talked about, and then the languishing group. So people who might be depressed, they may have some some true mental illness, schizophrenia, paranoia, you know, all, the whole DSM-5 stuff. What I have always maintained is the distinction should be the clients, that coaches should not be working with clients who are languishing. And then the coach should be referring them to a therapist. So, so once, once a client says, well, you know, I'm, I'm really feeling sad most of the time. I wake up some mornings, I, I don't want to get out of bed. And then that's, you know, when, when a coach still keeps working with a person like that, then I think that's inappropriate. So I think, does that answer your question? Yes. Yes. And I like this, this approach of differentiating along clients that tells a story for me. Definitely. And when, when you mentioned this, first, the inappropriate borrowing, it was more in the context of methods and tools. But as you were answering me, you just put it into a, into a different context. So, it, it, yes, it does answer my question. And I, your statement that you believe that there is, a, there is no fundamental difference between what coaches and, and therapists are doing, because these were not your exact words, because I tend to agree with that. And I think it would be an interesting interesting discussion. Okay, what are the important differentiator points? And what's your idea on that? So what, what is the thing that where we, coaches and therapists, we are, we are doing something very different to make sure that we can draw some boundaries between the professions? And we have some tools on our website. You go to the ICF website uh, on the research tab. There's a, a set of tools on, we call it referring a client to a therapist. One of the kind of main indicators that we use are what are called ADLs, activities of daily living. And that if the client talks about, as I mentioned, having difficulty getting out of bed or feeling sad a lot of the times, or they have difficulty, you know, I'm hungry and I'm having trouble getting myself motivated to go make some food, to go eat. I'm having difficulty 
you know, going out and meeting friends. You know, I realize I shouldn't should meet with my friends, but I just can't get motivated to do that. So when these activities of daily living start being becoming difficult for the client, then that's a that's a big sign. That's a that's a key indicator. And when we did that work, so Alicia Hollinger at ICF, she did the vast majority of that work. What we did was we interviewed coaches who were also therapists and I talked about them, about the differentiation between the two. And then we wrote a lot of stuff up, went back to them and said, here's what we've come up with. Do you agree with this or not? And then adjusted it accordingly. And so that was our methodology in that. But I think it's still important to discuss these, the, the boundaries between professions like coaching, mentoring, therapy, counseling. And when I mean when I use the word boundaries, for me, boundaries are not just things that separate certain areas, but, but that link those areas that act as points of connection between them. And I like this phrasing of boundaries. And I think it, it's an important thing to, to keep an eye on what are the developments in these adjacent areas or in these neighboring areas, how and what can we learn from each other? What are the things that we should avoid to not get to areas or professional activities that we shouldn't be doing from ethical reasons or whatever. So I think this is a, a, a very important discussion point on how we are doing what and what are we borrowing from the other sides? What are the circumstances under which we can do this? Mm-hmm. So I'm just yeah. thankful for you for bringing in this the, the client approach in there. Sure. So if I could take a, a few moments to talk about a commonality. Please. Okay. So. I've mentioned some of these researchers, Leslie Greenberg, Klaus Grah, Barry Duncan, Bruce Wampold, Michael, Michael Lambert. So back in the 1990s, there was this idea that I've talked about, what causes change? And so when I delved into the literature asking that question, I came across some of this, this literature and in, in the stream. And, and a lot of the work, like I say, was in the 1990s about the active ingredients of coaching or therapy. And and I I think it's actually kind of sad because it's been overused. And Michael Lambert had a paper where he kind of guessed at some numbers and people took these as gospel. And so now you have people quoting these numbers uh, for decades, uh, literally. But if you really dig into the literature, what you'll see is there was a, a a project called the heart and soul of change. And it was around therapy. And this goes into this idea about the stream of research that's that's absolutely fascinating. They came out with a book in 1999 on the heart and soul of change. And Michael Lambert's chart was in there with the active ingredients of therapy. Then And then they worked for another 10 years. And, and they came out with another edition of the book. And they basically said in the second edition of the book, They said, we're sorry, we left out the client in our research. (laughs) And they said, we really think the client has a lot more input into this than what we gave credit for in the 1999 version. And when I was coaching, I would ask two questions. In this moment, how much do you feel you need to change? And I would ask on a scale of one to 10. And then secondly, the second question would be, in this moment, how committed are you to change? 
what I believe, and I don't have data on this yet, and, and I'm hoping someday we can do the research on this, but I believe that a lot of the change that happens within clients is because of what we call likelihood to change. People talk about coachability, but really in a more generalized fashion, it's a likelihood to change. And that can be around a lot of things, and I won't go into those psychological constructs, but the idea that the client comes in with some likelihood to change, and as a coach, in terms of research, we talk psychology research, we talk about a moderator. So your coaching can be a moderator to that likelihood to change. You can turn up the likelihood to change, or you can turn it down. So I think it's really important that out of that research, that especially this group, the Heart and Soul Change Project, that what they found was that the client has a lot of, in the research community, we would call it contributing the variance, uh, the amount of variance into the outcome, right? You can understand that. Yes, a, a very precise description. <laughs> right. So, so the, in lay terms, the client has a lot to do whether they have positive change or not. <laughs> yeah. I was aware of this research and that they, they have left out the clients. I was not into the depth of it. But why I'm picking this up is that sometimes we just see new, you know, new stuff, unexpected things coming to our views. And, and what I'm interested in is that were there any results or studies that brought you unexpected results or unexpected new ideas around some of your favorite topics or in or let's be more specific in, in coaching or in or in personal change. So are there any things that like, who would have thought that? Were there any moments like that for you? Well, th- yeah, there have been several. You know, we have a, a paper that was published in uh, 2019 in Consulting Psychology Journal titled something like An Exploration of Managers and Leaders Use of Coaching Skills, which has ended up being actually a pretty popular paper. And you talk about that differentiation of, of these boundaries of mentoring, coaching, and, you know, inside organizations, managing and leading. And we talk about that and we we provide very crisp definitions in there because that's extremely important. One of the first things when you're doing a research study, of course, is to define what it is you're studying. We define those things very well. And we talk about a spectrum of managers and leaders from being directive to being participative or facilitative. And that when you're using coaching skills, you're being on that participative end of the spectrum, which is very important at times, but it also at times is very important to be directive. You know, when the emergency crew comes out, if I've had a heart attack and they're in my house, they're not going to say, hey, you know, what do you, what do you guys think? You think we should uh, give them an injection of this stuff or you know, they're not going to be participative. It's like, hey, Fred, get the get the syringe and get it in him now. So there are times for both. Anyway, what are the surprising findings? So in that study, it was an exploratory study. And we we wanted to study if there was some correlation of the use of coaching skills by managers and leaders with other things. And so, you know, you talked about the, the kind of sterile assessments, you know, and they're, they're not sterile by any means, but, you know, we have some very well-validated assessments out there. There's the Utrecht Work Engagement Scale, Excellent Scale. We, we validated against that. 
the WAI, the Working Alliance Inventory, uh, Horvath and Hotcher scale. And then there was a short intention to, to quit scale from Colorelli that we used. And so what we did was we made some questions about managers and leaders, and it was frequency of use. How often did this manager or leader ask a question that offered a profound insight? And what we did was we actually used the ICF core competencies, asked questions that were those core competencies, but again, did not use the word coaching. And we asked how frequently. We ended up with nine items around those, the, at the time, excuse me, 11 core competencies. So we asked around nine of them. And we found a very good correlation of those nine items with the engagement, the working alliance, and the reduced intention to quit. We had no idea that we would see that, none. And so there was this serendipity of finding an assessment scale that people can use. You can get the paper and you can use that assessment. And it, it was like, wow, this is pretty cool. <laughs> Yes, you have, you know, you have accidentally validated your coaching model or the competency model. That's what I'm, that's what I'm hearing. Yeah. Great. I love these unexpected findings in the research world that can just inspire us to, to move on and ask new questions. And may I ask what are the questions you are pondering on right now? So what is, besides the coaching culture that you have mentioned in the beginning, are there any big questions that that are occupying your mind these days, besides the coaching culture, if there are any other things? I think fundamentally that the use of coaching skills can really, really help to enhance dialogue in our planet and across all human beings, all homo sapiens. One of the things that we, we did a literature review a couple of years ago on the social impact of coaching. And we'd like to, to do some more rigorous research on this. And how is it that coaching, the use of coaching skills impacts people sort of upstream, right? So you and I can, can have a conversation that might be a better conversation because I've learned coaching skills. And that has an impact on you, right? And then you go on to have an impact on, say, five of your students. And so, you know, there's this proliferation of the impact of those, of those coaching skills. So I believe firmly that if we're intentional, the use of coaching skills can be used more broadly. They're already used broadly. And we think about 20 years ago, 25 years ago, coaching was thought about as this one-to-one professional relationship, excuse me, that people had. And then you know, it's been broadened into managers and leaders using coaching skills, team coaching. We did a, a 18-month project on team coaching uh, competencies, and, and, you know, that's out there now, and, and we're working on a certification for that. And now we're working on coaching culture. So how are the coaching skills proliferated more in the organization? Now let's go beyond that into communities. And, you know, community developers already have been using uh, coaching skills. I, I met many years ago with somebody locally here who they are a professor at a university and they do economic development and go out into communities. And, and they, he said, well, here's our process. Here's what we do. I said, well, that's just coaching. You're using coaching skills. And he said, yeah, there's this book. And I look at this book and it's just coaching skills. And it's like, wow, 
this is really cool stuff. Marshall Goldsmith and the nonviolent communication, right? How can we take the coaching skills and do the same thing and proliferate the coaching skills on a global level and work on climate change, on work on on wealth inequality, on differences of political views of, you know, we, we all fundamentally across the globe, we all want the same thing, right? We want decent jobs. We want a decent place to live. We want clean water. We want access to healthy food. We want to have a, a community that supports us. All of us, fundamentally, everywhere want the same thing. So how do we have a dialogue to help to build a better world? And that's what I, that's to, to me, that, okay, that's my, I guess, my big, big question. And so if we look at what's coming online, you know, AI, artificial intelligence coaching has come online. It's there. It's effective. There's research that's there that has shown that AI coaching can be effective. How can human coaches work effectively with the AI coaching to to proliferate the idea of coaching? And fundamentally, the AI coaching could really enhance the interest in coaching to where the human coaches could be actually more in demand. There's a fundamental human trait that I believe we have to overcome. And the more and more I've read, the more and more I believe that human behavior is fundamentally driven by one one thing. And again, I have no data on this. I could be proven wrong tomorrow. And that is in-group, out-group. So if, if you look at how we have come into being, into where we are as a species, you know, we were out 10,000 years ago, we were out in the savanna floor. We were foraging for food. We were hunting for food. We were hunter-gatherers, right? And we lived in tribes. There was the safety of our tribes. Fundamentally, when we see someone, and there's good data, around this. When we meet someone, we decide internally, are they safe or not? And and if you look at some of that research, within three seconds, we will have made a decision. And that's that in-group, out-group bias. And, And that's in our DNA. And as a coach, what we're doing, we talk about building relationship, we're establishing rapport, but we're trying to get the client into our in group. Fundamentally, that's all we're doing. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to build that rapport. We're trying to say, hey, client, you're safe with me. It's not as much about building relationship as about the client feeling safe. If you look at some of the the brief coaching, brief therapy work, Mm -hmm. they don't spend a lot of time on relationship building, right? 20 minutes is their session. They just get down to it. Hey, let's let's talk. What What do you want to talk about? They build the safe space. Very quickly, they get into goals, they they work on it, and boom, they're done. And they do a lot of resource activation. Yes. To circle back to our previous topic. Yes. Yes. If you think about in coaching, how can you get the client to feel like they're in the in-group with you? How do they feel safe? How do you activate their resources? How do you get them into that likelihood to change, find out what their goals are? And facilitate the change. That's it. Sounds so beautiful and simple. <laughs> I'm a fan of 
of studies that give very detailed and sometimes hard to understand outcomes. That, but when we find something that can be put in such a simple and beautiful manner, I, I have a sense that, well, we have found some fundamental truth. Right. So I'm always amazed when we find something that, that can be simply and beautifully put. And I love your words in this. So thank you for that. And one one thing that I that I love in what you've been saying is the democratization of coaching. That it is getting more and more available to everyone. And, and I really agree with that as a goal to bring it to everyone. Because yes, as you've been saying, it's it builds relationships and relationships where well, they heal, they solve problems and they bring us closer to each other. So I think we, we definitely need them. My my challenging question for this in-group out-group thing would, would come from biology. Well, I have to admit I'm not a biologist, but a study that I have read said that the that we have a an evolutionary limit of around a hundred or two hundred peoples that we would consider to be as as in-group members, as our tribe, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that is the community or that is the amount of people that we that we are wires to work together with. That and we can that, intimately interact with. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, with, and and how does that, has that changed? How could technology help us with that? How could using coaching skills consciously help us in rewiring that or in or in overcoming that, that biological boundary? And I, I love this line of thinking. I have thought about that because that is, I think that's kind of a critical question that you're on, Zoltan, and that is how do we overcome it? And I think of overcoming it because, you know, it takes a long time for us to genetically rewire this DNA, you know, it's it's coded into us. And, you know, I've been reading a book about bonobos and chimpanzees, and it's fascinating because we'll have some characteristics of bonobos and we have some characteristics of chimpanzees. It is, to me, it is overcoming our DNA. And, and there, yeah, there's the kind of the 12 limit of a team. There's the 10 limit of a community. And when, you know, when you look at with the advent of agriculture and, you know, the city, state, nation paradigms, you know, and how that, how all that came about, that I believe we are working against that DNA and we have to overcome that fear because it's fear. It's yeah. fear of the outgroup. We don't know who these people are. We don't know what might happen. And so, yes, absolutely, we have to overcome that. So how do we, how do we make people feel safe, that it's okay to have the dialogue, that it's okay to experience that and have those deeper conversations and have the meaning, meaningful dialogue you know, you take Israelis and Palestinians, right? You, they can be, you know, like this, and then you set them down at the dinner table and they have a conversation. Hey, tell me about your kids, right? Oh, your kids are in high school. I have a kid in high school too, right? And then they find all these commonalities. And that's, we need to have those dialogues to understand that we are all the same and we all want the same stuff. Yeah, it, it, it is fighting against our DNA because we're, we're scared, we're fearful. And here in the States, you know, you see sort of a stereotype is of, you know, people in, in kind of rural areas, they stick to themselves. 
They have fear of, of people from outsiders, you know, and, and, but then a lot of times what happens is students will go to a bigger city, go to university, they get educated, they start experiencing people from different cultures and they're like, wow, this is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And they go back and they they go back home and they bring their friends from different cultures. And it's like, whoa, wait a minute here. I don't know. <laughs> uh, should you be bringing this person around? The beauty of that is that integration that works, but it, it's a it's a sometimes a stark contrast uh, seeing those disparities. So yes, absolutely, we are working against that DNA, and and that's what we, I believe, as a species, to overcome the climate problems that we have, to overcome the disparities that we have in terms of uh, inequities in in many ways, right? We need to have that dialogue. We need to meet and have those discussions. And coaching skills can enhance those discussions. I really agree with that. And that's where I would like to circle back to one of your previous comments on on the effectiveness of of AI coaching and the presence of technology in our our profession. And I'm curious on on, on your insights there. So, how do you see the presence of AI in coaching and what do you see as a potential trend for it? It's an excellent question, uh, Zoli. In psychology, you'll see a lot of inverted U-shaped curves. You know, in goal theory, uh, take uh, take it and, and, you know, if a goal is too hard or too easy, then the, the goals are too low and you're, you'll underperform. And the inverted U-curve that I drew was um, x-axis is time, so the coach working over time, and then the y-axis, the vertical axis, is uh, cognitive, use of cognitive tools or or capabilities. Mm -hmm. And if you imagine when a coach starts out, they're learning coaching, they may be learning tools and techniques and, and, you know, they may use the grow model, for example, and, and they're starting up this cognitive curve. And so they're going down in time. And I use the term, they accrete, right? They gather more tools and techniques. They go to workshops, they go to retreats and, and they do learning online with people. And again, they're learning more models. And finally they're like at the apex or they're at the top and, and they're like, wow, I know all these things. I've, found my way. I've learned all this. And then they keep coaching and then they start down the back side of the curve. And the back side of the curve is there's a lot of pieces and parts of this. And one is, you know, the expertise literature where the expert embodies whatever it is. You look at, there's a Hungarian archer and there's this beautiful video that is gone now, but he, he talked about riding the horse and shooting the arrows at the target and he said, you don't think about it. You just do it. You feel the horse. You feel the motion of the horse. And you just shoot the arrow. There's no cognitive thought in that. You think of a coach at that level, a very experienced coach, and they're just doing it. You listen to those conversations. And it's just fluid. It's dynamic. Everything is happening. They're assessing how well the client is progressing in the session. And you can't tell the coach is doing it, right? Yeah. And so they have moved down the back side of that curve. If you look at what a an AI or an artificial intelligence coaching bot or you know chat bot or whatever does today, they're using that modeling. They're at the downside of that curve just at the model-based level. 
And I have seen data that people have taken where the AI coach is just as good as the human coaching. But can you get to what I just talked about, about that that fluidity of conversation? No, they're not there. It's going to be decades until we could begin to get there. We're not going to supplant or replace the human coaches anytime soon. But for some people, they can get a taste of the coaching with the AI bot. And they might say, wow, this is pretty cool. It helped me. I want to get a human coach now, though. And so that's why I'm saying it could actually create more demand for human coaches. I think the AI coaching will have a place. And I think it will actually be very useful to us in the long run. We at ICF, uh, we have a group of outside developers that are building these tools and they're helping us to build some AI coaching standards. So that's really important. You know, how ethical are the bots? What happens to the data? Who has access to it? Um, There's a whole host of questions out there and some standards that really should be met. And so uh, these guys are extremely bright individuals and I'm really honored to be working with them on some of these standards. And and so, you know, uh, hopefully that will, will move this forward as well and move the idea of coaching forward. Thank you. And yeah, this is how I'm working. I just have another flashpoints on which I could just continue a conversation because I have read so many articles on, on biased chatbots, for example, how they are learning the biases of their partners as they are having conversations or as they are just chatting with people or if they are just harvesting data from different parts of the internet and so being deep, not biased, being ethical, these are all key questions for me when talking about mm-hmm. generally coaching and especially when talking about technology and coaching, when we are outsourcing certain decisions to algorithms. Right. Or non-people actors who may not have these moral compasses that we <laughs> should be having as people. And, and the training data that they use to train these, if it's got machine learning in it, right? Was mm-hmm. there bias in the training data? Is there any bias in the algorithms? Yes. These are huge problems that people are working on today. Mm-hmm. Extremely important. And what I'm thinking right now is that, well, collecting all those MC-level <clears throat> exams, you know, recordings, that could be a nice set of data to teach some coaching bots. <laughs> Right. I hope I have not unveiled some secret ICF plans here. I, I no, will cut but, this from the conversation. But it's interesting. A year ago, we started a study to compare the differences between. So we have three levels of coaching uh, credentials, associate, mm-hmm. professional, and master. And um, we started, I talked about mixed methods studies, and we started a qualitative study. Mm-hmm. And then we also started studying what were the differences based on assessor, uh, people who assess at these levels, what's the difference that they see at these levels? You'll see some work come out of us that uh, does a better job at differentiating at these levels. And it's absolutely fascinating. Again, it, it gets to that curve I was talking about, you know, that I theorized back five years ago or so. And that at the lower level, there it is more model-based. It is a little bit more prescriptive. Bot can't 
be can't have those fluid conversations, those very wide ranging open conversations. I I actually had a chat with a bot not too long ago and it, it got in a loop. <laughs> and so I sent them an email and said, I think you got a little problem here. You know, they're not there yet, totally, but but some of them are really darn good. I have experienced some that are excellent. Interesting to hear. And uh, you know, from the practitioner perspective, what I'm I'm, I'm hearing that in your opinion, the the AIs will be here to raise awareness of coaching and to generate more interest for coaching. If I'm taking the evil look at it, I could say that AI is here to compete with the with the juniors or the not so well experienced coaches. And you know, I can so I can think of the dynamics at that level that if if people would have an, a demand for human coaches, wouldn't they have a demand for more experienced coaches? Those who could give them more than what an AI could. And then what would happen to those professionals or those coaches who are just entering the markets? I'm just talking about extremes here. I'm, I'm aware of that. But how can they get the amount of practice time that would avoid, that would allow them to grow beyond the levels of AIs? Yeah, it, it's a very excellent question and, and one that I have had posed to me before. And it's like, well, that's not very encouraging, Joel. <laughs> But fundamentally, and we, we talk about this in the standards work, the AI coach, coaching platform or tool, whatever, can be used as a training tool for the coach. And so I believe these platforms will will come into existence. But you're right. It does kind of raise the bar for the coach. And, you know, that's okay. It's it's like any other field, right? Things are dynamic. This gets back to our, our stream conversation, right? Nothing is static. It's always changing. And you, you have to up the game at times, right? And so, you know, it's interesting. I I... When I went to engineering school, I was sitting there thinking one day and I thought, you know, what I learned in two years in, in my engineering program was what my dad learned in four years. That's, I, I'm not learning more because I'm smarter than him. Not at all. I'm learning more because we know more now. And, and that gets into the whole idea of what I call, what the psychology world calls schemas. But I believe that schemas are extremely important in how we learn and how we can learn more quickly. And so I believe the AI coaching will help us understand certain schemas and that the coaches will be able to learn faster, you know, more quickly. They will be able to overcome that level of coaching. They will become better coaches. So I believe that through the, the AI coaching platforms, they'll be able to be, well, number one, be better coaches. And number two, be better coaches more quickly. I think it's okay, you know, but that's the way the world works. Look at radiologists, right? There's AI for radiology that now they found that actually some of the AI bot can read x-rays a little bit better than the, the radiologist, but there's still some stuff that the, the humans can do better. So, you know, it's, 
it's the world, it's the universe. The universe is not static. And we need to just hop on board and ride the train and enjoy the ride. Thank you very much. I, and I just have the, okay, and more and more and more <laughs> kind of questions. But as, as our time is nearing to its end, I would, I would just like to thank you for being with me today. I really enjoyed the conversation. And I would be happy to have you back to continue this because I have questions or, or ideas about intuition, older coaches or experienced coaches being logged into their intuitive patterns. And I would be curious on your insights. Absolutely. I'd be delighted to explore that topic. We actually did some research in that and we call it the coach's journey. Can you tell me just a few thoughts on this that you have just mentioned, the journey of the coach, like as a, as a teaser for a, for a next session that we may have? <laughs> One of the studies that we, we started out to do was the kind of research question was, how do coaches stay fit for purpose? Mm-hmm. And as we started doing, it was a qualitative study and uh, interviewed a lot of coaches and Alicia Hollinger. What she found was that the very experienced coaches, the very, what we believe to be successful coaches, that they never stopped learning that they always ask the question, what's next? What's next? What's more? How else can I evolve and how, how else can I develop? And this idea of continual learning, this continual path of, of, you know, what new is out there. And it's not just about accreting another tool or technique, but it's, it's about the field of, of human development or human potential. And, you know, some of the coaching came out of the human potential moving, movement. You know, you think of Esalen and California and a lot of this kind of work. And that is what it's about. That is about, it is about how do we as humans move forward on our planet? How do we survive? How do we succeed? How do we thrive? How do we build this better world? And so how do we keep learning and growing And, and that's fundamentally extremely important for a, I believe, for a successful coach is you never say, okay, I'm there. I've arrived. Thank you for listening to On Coaching Podcast, where I have curious conversations with world-renowned coaches and researchers. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to rate us and subscribe. I also invite you to visit zoltanchigesh.com, where you can access more resources regarding the coaching industry. Be well.